Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. If you'd open your Bibles and turn to James chapter 3. So we continue this amazing book and a study tonight on the role of wisdom. I don't know how many of you have actually thought about why God's wisdom is so important in our lives, but for me, this is one of those very practical topics that when we talk about it, when we teach about it, when we think about it, wisdom permeates virtually every part of your existence, every moment of every day. And it can be one of two types. It can either be God's wisdom or it can be the world's wisdom. And wisdom simply stated is just the ability to use knowledge correctly, understanding correctly, to take things that you believe you know and know how to rightly use what you know. And so wisdom is unbelievably important to every single person, believer or non-believer. But in this case, James is writing to us as the church. And he's speaking to us about this contrast between the world's wisdom and between godly wisdom. And in order to speak of that contrast, it's as if he lays this on, I don't know how many of you have been into, say, a jeweler's store, and they've brought out that infamous piece of black velvet. And when you take a nice, beautiful ring and you lay it on black velvet, it is all the more beautiful, right? Why? Because you see the full contrast between this sparkling diamond and the gold and the dark background. And so James does this with wisdom. He lays it against the world's wisdom. He says, this is what God's wisdom looks like, and this is what the world's wisdom looks like. And it should not take you very long to figure out which one of these two ways is the best way for us to live. And so tonight, we'll pick up in verse 13 down to verse 18 and the role of wisdom. Would you pray with me? Father, we do lift up our team that's in Cartagena right now. Lord, as they're out ministering on the island of Tierra Bamba to those precious ladies and Lord, all of those beautiful children, we just asked God that you would minister uh, through our team, that you'd grant them great favor. Lord, that many would come to know you, uh, commit their lives to you and walk with you in that wisdom that we are going to learn about tonight. And so speak to us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 13. And first, we have kind of the the broad stream, if you will, the wide river shown to us. Who is wise and understanding among you? Question mark. Who is wise and understanding among you? Question mark. Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. You remember the context of chapter 2? That faith without works is dead? That we're supposed to show the world how deep our faith is by the way we live our lives, that there's a direct correlation between 
what we believe and what we do and what we say, there should be zero hypocrisy. In other words, what we declare as the church, what we believe and what we say we believe should be absolutely evident in the way that we live. And so the question, again, who is wise and understanding among you? Question mark. Let him, let her, show by good conduct that our works are done with the meekness of wisdom. Again, the word meekness is very important to that sentence because it is not weakness. It's not you being a spiritual jellyfish pushed around any direction you get pushed. You just simply give until you get out of the way. No, meekness from a biblical standpoint is seen in the life of Jesus as the ultimate authority and power in all of the universe completely under control. Meekness is actually power under control. It's not powerless, it's very powerful, but it's power used the right way. So again, who is wise and understanding among you? Question mark. Let him, let her show by good conduct that his or her works are done in the meekness. In other words, the power under control of how you use the knowledge that you have correctly, wisdom. You can tell where someone's at spiritually by the way they live their lives and very specifically how they take the knowledge that they have of Jesus and put it into practice in this world. It comes out in the way that you work. It comes out in every facet of your life. Every moment of every day is an opportunity for you to show the world how wise you are meekly in the power of Christ in you, who is your hope of glory. James goes on now to flesh this whole idea out, and he gives us this contrast that I spoke of. Verse 14, but if you have bitter envy, elos, elos, it's literally the same word twice. Bitterness and envy are so interrelated that in the Greek language, they're the same word. It's how you use them in a sentence that determines whether it's bitterness or envy. Bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts. Do not boast and lie against the truth. For this kind of wisdom, you see the world's wisdom is bitter, self-seeking, and envious. It wants what others have. It is angry that other people are doing well. It seeks its own It does exactly what Paul said does not define agape love. It does seek its own instead of it does not seek its own. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, do not boast and lie against the truth. In other words, don't lie about it. For this wisdom does not descend from above, but it is earthly and sensual and demonic. And here it comes. For where envy and self-seeking exist, here's the fruit of not being in the Spirit. 
Here's the fruit of not having godly wisdom. Here's the fruit of you walking in the flesh where envy and self-seeking exists, confusion, and every evil thing are there. In other words, at the heart of someone who does not possess God's wisdom or is walking in the devil's way, in the world's wisdom, in the devil's wisdom, that person is primarily envious and self-seeking, and the evidence of it is confusion and every evil work. In other words, you can tell when someone is not wise in the things of the Lord. Because what follows them, what swirls around them, it's constant envy, constant strife, self-seeking. And because of that, confusion. Whenever you find massive confusion in this world, you can be assured that the Lord is not in it. Confusion is a fruit of the devil's existence in this world. When you see confusion, especially confusion over things that you shouldn't be confused about, you can be assured that the devil has some hand in it, whether directly or indirectly, because it is not a fruit of God's wisdom. It's a fruit of the devil's wisdom. But the wisdom that is from above, and here's the contrast. So in order that we can see the contrast, we've had the darkness of that black velvet laid out. It's now on the table. Here's what the devil's wisdom looks like. It's envious, it's bitter, it's self-seeking, it's earthly, it's sensual, it's demonic. It has confusion and every evil thing. That's a lot of that black velvet being laid out so that you can see the beauty of what should exist as wisdom in the life of a believer. The role of wisdom that it plays in our lives. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure. And we're going to break this whole thing down tonight because it's so important for our lives practically to walk in wisdom. And then peaceable. And I would cause you to know, those of you that know your Bibles, know that these things are the very substance of what Paul would write to the church at Galatia in chapter 5. This is the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then the evidences of that love, that agape love, is joy, peace, gentleness, meekness, self-control. And about those things, there is no sense. The law needs to govern over them. It is peaceable, gentle, willing to yield. It'll give in rather than fight. It's full of mercy. It doesn't give what is earned. Good fruits... That's a, that's a broad way of saying that which comes from, because all good things come down from our Father of lights who is in heaven. Amen? So anything good that you have came from, good, from a good God who wants to give good gifts to his kids, and his good gifts that he's given to his kids, his kids should want to give to others. God's kids should be the most generous people on the face of the earth with the good things that God's given us. We shouldn't be envious. We shouldn't be jealous. We shouldn't be stingy. We definitely shouldn't be lying. We shouldn't be earthly or sensual in that sense. We should be willing to yield full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality, and here it comes, 
without being an actor, without being a hypocrite, without playing the part, without speaking Christianese, the true Christian in wisdom of the Lord that's from heaven, is genuinely someone who wants to be like Christ, not trying to fool people into thinking that you're a believer. It's genuine. It's not hypocritical. And now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace. God's righteousness. When we use that term, only God is truly righteous. And I hope you all understand that. There is none righteous, not one. The Bible's very clear on this. In our humanity, we're not actually even capable of God's righteousness. So the righteousness that we have actually is the righteousness that came to us from Christ. It's been placed into our lives through our relationship with him. So in that sense, you possess righteousness. But that righteousness, that fruit of what God has done in your life, the fact that you are a Christian, is sown in peace by those who make peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Amen? And so he desires that all men have his peace. And in order for all men to have his peace, they must have his righteousness. And so we have to sow that righteousness into this world in peace. You cannot beat people into the kingdom of God. It doesn't work. You're not ever going to find that standing on a street corner with some absurd sign that all homosexuals are going to burn in hell is ever going to win anyone to Christ. Now, ultimately, maybe that is a truth, but is that what Jesus would say? And is that how he would say it? And I would say to you, that's not only not what he would say, that's not how he would say it. Case in point, the woman caught in the act of adultery. The woman at the well. What he did when constantly confronted with evil, he never took out the battle axe and beat people. He loved people into the kingdom so much so that he laid down his own life. He gave up all of his rights so that we might become the sons and daughters of God. Amen? So real wisdom doesn't need the types of tactics that the world uses. The world uses those things. The world uses the insane speech. The world uses the angry, bitter mob. The world uses those types of devices. And so the contrast is very clear in this passage. It is not God's wisdom that causes people to do those things which keeps people from seeing how much God loves them. Notice I didn't say that God's not truthful or that God doesn't have standards, but there is a way to tell people about those standards without beating them to death so that they have no hope. God's wisdom is peaceable. It's gentle. It's willing to yield it is merciful. Anybody thankful for the mercy of God? Amen. Amen. So God's people should also be merciful. Doesn't mean we don't tell the truth, but we do exactly what Paul wrote in the book that he wrote to the Ephesians. We speak the truth in, say it, 
love. Amen? You can speak absolute truth into somebody's life. Wisdom says if you want that person to come to know the loving king that's the prince of peace, then you might want to represent the loving king who's the prince of peace. Amen? Do you have to tell people the truth? Of course. But there's a lot of ways to do that. And it doesn't require that they get hit in the top of their head with the holy baseball bat of God's word. You can tell them the truth while still telling them that Jesus loves them, that he cares deeply about their eternity, that he actually died so that they can spend eternity with him, that actually he is willing that how many should perish, church? None. So if he's unwilling that any should perish, but desires that all should come to repentance, don't you think that the message of the church ought to be principally a message that the Prince of Peace loves you? That's why it's so damaging when the church becomes a voice that's so similar to the world that the world can't distinguish the difference between the world and God's people. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to have this broad river of wise living pouring out of us. It's true an unsaved person can hold their tongue and watch their speech when there's something to be gained by it. Amen? I've watched people do it throughout my entire life, both in business and in the church. You know, people can be good for a time. But the real them eventually comes out. I can tell you that as well. So if you're really a believer and you're really supposed to be peaceable and kind and gentle and meek and humble and merciful... When you're put to the test, when you're tried, as we've already seen as we began this wonderful book, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, and patience, when it has its perfect work, leaves you lacking nothing. Then what's going to come out at the end is all Jesus. You're going to look like him and talk like him and sound like him and love like him. You'll confront like him. You'll call sin, sin, but you'll do it in such a way that there's hope left at the end of the sentence. People will know that it's not just that they're wrong, but they're wrong because God says that he loves them and he wants them to be right with him. That that righteousness is peaceable. Notice what it says. All these characteristics that are positive in this passage or the characteristics of Jesus. Matter of fact, you can find every last one of them in the Sermon on the Mount. They're contained in the Beatitudes. These are the things that Jesus repeatedly taught while he was here on earth. And I would remind you that James, the man who writes this book, who's Jesus' half-brother, was actually for a period of time himself blind to these truths. So this is on no one's case. It shouldn't be a surprise to us that we need an instruction in this area of life and living. Why? Because it's not easy. It's not easy to be wise in this world. It is easy to default to the world's ways. It's easy to become bitter. It's easy to become angry. It's easy to start doing things the world's way because the world does it the world's way and we're in the world, but we're not supposed to be of this world. We're supposed to be different. 
Notice verse 14 begins what you might call the the muddy stream, the dirty river, the polluted river of wickedness or wicked ways. And you'll see really four things here. There in verse 14. James kind of says to us, look, if the Holy Spirit's actually in you, then the stream that is your life should be pure. It should be righteous. It should be holy. And it should definitely be a quiet, flowing stream. It shouldn't be something that causes people to wonder whether they can cross into it or not. What does that muddy river look like? It begins with a bitter spirit. People who are not wise in the things of the Lord have a habitually bitter spirit. They are bitter about everything. Nothing meets their standards. They always feel that they're on the short end of the stick. They have to be at the top of the heap. They are habitually bitter. They can't get past their own bitterness. They always feel as though they have somehow been wronged in a greater way than virtually everybody else on earth. And this phrase that's bitter envying, as I said, it, it, it's, it's really zealous, zealous. A word that we often translate jealousy. It's, it's as if James, the Holy Spirit, is speaking through him. It's like you're doubly jealous. You're bitterly envious. That's what jealousy does. It makes you bitterly envious. When you're overcome with jealousy, you are bitterly envious. You want what other people have. You believe they don't deserve it, and you do. This was so dangerous that to the Jewish people in Numbers chapter 5, God actually commanded that there was a penalty for being bitter and jealous. It was written into the civil code. How many people's lives have been forfeited? How many people have died over bitterness? And jealousy. How many fortunes have been lost? How many good people's names have been slandered? To have that bitter and envying heart towards someone who maybe is perhaps more wise or more gifted or more successful shows the exact reason why you probably don't have what they have. Because God is not going to entrust to you the things that he wants to give you until you are going to use them the way he wants you to use them. And that's not in bitterness and envy. It's in freedom and in joy and in peace. A second thing, it seems as though the person mentioned here, the person with the world's wisdom, has a belligerent spirit. If you have strife, notice the second portion of verse 14, in your heart. Strife is striving with bitterness involved. It's being contrary. It's never having a good thing to say about anyone or anything. It's constantly being possessed of the negative. The strife-filled person constantly is negative. They create strife. They actually thrive on it to some degree. 
And they become belligerent about it. It's like everybody should feel the way they feel. And ultimately, I would say this, that that person's God is actually themselves. That they sit on the throne of their own heart. And so everyone gets compared to them. I would tell you that that's why in the early church, when that verse began, you read in the book of Acts that they had all things in common. Do you know that that only lasted about a year? And the church found out very quickly that you couldn't have all things in common because it was filled with people and people were not always filled with the Spirit. It's why communism doesn't work. It's why socialism doesn't work. Communism and socialism in a perfect world where everyone was like Jesus would probably work. But it doesn't work when you have people that are people. Because people take advantage of other people. There will be a hierarchy. There'll be someone who has more and someone who has less. Incomes, bitterness, and envy, and strife. And so the apostles recognized that. And so they appointed some godly, gracious men to watch over the church, to administer everything. They actually started the role of elders and deacons in the church so that those men, those leaders in the church could hopefully even things out to where someone might be tempted to be filled with strife by getting their own way, that they would knock that down by making sure everybody had their portion. A third thing that you can see here is that there was a boastful spirit there in the third part of this verse. James says, do not glory, don't boast. It also means to exalt or exalt yourself. The, the world has no need for boastful people. It really does no good to anyone. It doesn't even benefit the person who's boasting about themselves. They think it does. They think that somehow other people look at the words that they say or hear those things. And all of a sudden they're going to rise to the top of the pile. They'll be at the top of the heap. But normally it's a ruse. It's a guy's for those things that are internal in that person's life, when they begin to boast, it's because there's actually some very deep lack that they're trying to cover for. There's a boastful spirit in man's wisdom. You can see that virtually everywhere. You can certainly see it in the world of sports. You can see it in academics. You can even see it in science. You, you can see it all over. You can see when man exalts himself, it's normally at the cost of others. It's not the way Jesus would have it. Remember, he's not willing that any should perish, and he's merciful to all. He's providentially good to everyone. He loves us each as his own sons and daughters. And so really God's saying, don't be partisan about this, don't. Boast about it. Don't glory in yourself. Where we go is the church we go together. A fourth thing. There was also a blinded spirit in this group that was being led by the flesh. Do not lie against the truth. The contrast here is truth is exactly who Jesus is. Amen? I am the way and the, and the life. 
And no one comes to the Father but by me. So truth is a mark of God's people. Lies, on the other hand, John 8, 44, is exactly the tool that the enemy uses most frequently. So the lying person, the person who has to lie against the truth, the person who makes up their own version of the truth, is actually exercising demonic wisdom. You have to think about it. That truth is throughout the Bible. You can see it virtually in almost every book somewhere where the devil is involved, where people are involved. You can go all the way back to the life of David and see how in David's life there was truth and there was lies. And every time lies were told, he got in trouble. Amen? Same is true in the life of Saul. Saul was a liar most of his life. He was at times a pretty good leader, but he ends up taking his own life because he had lived a lie. Be careful. So here's the the dirty water. It's pretty easy to see. And so when you see those things, again, whenever you see these contrasting things in Scripture, they're always for our benefit. And so we can look at it and go, "Mm, I don't really want to be like that. Or I really should try to be like this. This is how the Lord is. God's good at that. And so he shows us these things. Notice the source of this wisdom or the outflow of it, if you will. Because there are really two kinds of wisdom. There's only two. There's earthly, carnal, worldly wisdom, and there's God's wisdom. And it's interesting that the Bible doesn't say there's any kind of mixture. It's very much like your salvation. There's only people who are saved and people who are not. There's believers and unbelievers, saints and ain'ts. There are people who are in the kingdom and people who are not in the kingdom. There's there's no in-between ground. And in a similar way, you either are exercising God's wisdom or the world's wisdom. It's either from the Lord and has the markers and characteristics of wisdom that's from the Lord, or it's from the world. And it's pretty easy to tell which source there is. And so James begins first with the secular source. This wisdom is basically not from above. That's pretty plain, amen? It has a secular source. In other words, it's not from heaven. It's got an earthly source. And so if it originates from earth, it has not originated from God. And because it's originated on earth, no matter what it looks like, it's never going to do God's work because it's not of God to begin with. It may even look religious. It may actually look like it's doing some good. Some of the greatest philosophers the world has ever known, when you talk about Aristotle and Plato, you you talk talk the great Roman Cicero, and you think of some of the things that were said. There were some marvelous things said by these men. The problem is their conclusions would lead you to following after a pagan god. So it sounded good on one hand, but it was earthly wisdom. And so it didn't lead you to the truth. It led you to a further lie. It's very much what we see in our world today. There are things that you can read on the internet. You go, oh, that sounds good. And before you know it, you're following after a lie because it's the world's wisdom. It's not God's wisdom. 
It's interesting how brilliant people, you know, I, I sit around sometimes and I'm ma- amazed, I'll, you know, just do simple search, same thing that you guys can do. Search the 10 greatest Buddhists alive today and you, you find some people have done some amazing things. There are some people that profess to be Hindu. Very brilliant. Have started some Fortune 500 companies. Very, very, very successful. But does that mean that that Hindu caste system that they believe in, they happen to be Brahmin? They're of the very highest class of the royal class? They don't tell you what they think about the Dalits that they're not even worthy of life. If they were to be found dying in the street, you shouldn't help them because that's their karma. Fortune 500 company and can't care for somebody who needs help. It's the world's wisdom. To be honest, science is filled with wondrous things. I love science personally. But a lot of science comes from the world's wisdom. It's not all good. Give you a couple of examples. Nuclear weapons. Mass destruction. Chemical weapons. Modified diseases that are being used as biological weapons. We have a weapons lab in this country that that's what it does. We talk a bunch about what happened in Wuhan. We can't point the finger very far because we have the exact same thing here. We've been creating new ways to kill people for decades. We've created weapons system after weapons system. All in the name of wisdom. Probably most of you are pretty reliant upon the internet now. Amen? There we go again. Welcome to Carson, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) That was pretty good timing. It was not a nuclear weapon, though. Ah, we're dependent on... The internet, I mean, your cell phone, it's like, how much stuff can you, you can real-time data all over the world. And you can get real-time pornography all over the world. You can read stuff that's patently not true. Completely false, total lies, but purported to be truth. And you can do it all day, every day. Whose wisdom do you think that is? How about genetic engineering? When is it going to be that we actually don't need people anymore? We have enough genetic material. I don't think that's from the Lord. Being as he's the author and creator of all life, I'm pretty sure he doesn't want to be supplanted by that. So where's that wisdom coming from? Oh, it looks brilliant. 
A basic accepted cosmology of our world is still Darwinian evolution. You talk to most people, they're like, hey, we came from monkeys. Oh, you know, that's what I was taught in school. Can I also tell you that that's the basic hypothesis used for the Holocaust? That's not God's wisdom. That is sensual wisdom. It's from a secular source. This wisdom actually come from, comes from our psyche, comes from the human mind. We can conjure up all kinds of things. The word that's used here actually is the same word from which we derive the word psychic. In other words, we make stuff up. The lower nature of man allows us to think of all kinds of very not good things. Oh, we're capable of wonderful things too. But the fact of the matter is, unless you're led by the spirit of the living God, you're going to have a tough time discerning which is which. The third source here, very easy to see. This wisdom is devilish or of the devil. It's literally demonic. The world's wisdom ultimately is demonic. And we can see the outcome of it because it produces unrest and ungodliness. It does those two things. And I want to speak to this issue for a moment. It is that wisdom that has developed hundreds of religious cults, perhaps thousands. It is that demonic wisdom that makes it look like it's a good thing. Look, Buddhism is, a, is primarily a religion of peace. I mean, who doesn't care for the smallest thing on earth? And in that sense, there's some good in it. But it also says that you need to keep reliving your life and be reincarnated over and over and over and over again until you finally become one with the great cosmic consciousness. That's demonic. Because it's not true. It is appointed unto man one time to die and then judgment. So that good that's over here in the kindness, in the doing no harm, turns into you're lost eternally. You see, the world gravitates towards the world's wisdom because it makes us feel good. I feel good about myself. And so the Lord's trying to help us with this to make sure that we have our wisdom meter set correctly. This all began with Cain and Abel, the, the root of these false ideas, and it's crept into virtually every part of our society. Really, every part of the world's existence has these diabolical ideas in them. Again, it's not that everything is demonic and everything is diabolical, but the systems that operate behind the scenes, the things that govern the way the world actually functions, it's not governed by God. That's why I said last week, God doesn't care one iota about our politics. Why? Because our politics is not firmly rooted and grounded in Christ. 
It's firmly rooted and grounded in self. It's so messed up that you couldn't possibly disassemble it and turn it into something godly. You'd have to erase the whole thing and start over. And so in that sense, God's concerned about people. He's not concerned about politics. Make sure you understand what I'm saying here. Does he concern himself with righteousness? Absolutely. Should you vote for godly candidates? Absolutely. Should you pray for laws that absolutely preach the righteousness of Christ as best we can in our communities? That our laws would represent how God would want us to live? Yes, of course. But ultimately, you can't redeem this earth. That's why the Bible plainly teaches one day this entire world and everything on it is going to be folded up like a scroll. I was waiting for another earthquake. I thought, you know, (laughs) come on. Not tonight, obviously. But this world has a date stamp. It's not going to last forever. That's why Jesus never preached a single message against Rome. You know that? Never. One of the most wicked governments that ever existed on the face of the earth. The Apostle Paul did not preach a single message against Rome. Peter didn't preach a single message against Rome. Who killed them all? Rome. We have to get our wisdom from the Lord. Because if we don't, we start fighting the wrong battle. We're going to waste all our time fighting something that God has already taken care of in his great wisdom. And before you know it, we're worrying about the wrong things. We need to care about what God cares about. That's using God's wisdom. I get all jacked up and worried about the things that are going on in every single little niche of our life and living, and I miss the fact that I am supposed to care about the people that God cares about. And that causes confusion. Then you have people running all over going, well, you know, we need to boycott this and boycott that and join this and join that. In the meantime, they haven't led anyone to Christ. They got so caught up in those other things. Again, be a great citizen. Absolutely exercise your right to vote. Tell your representatives what you think of their godlessness. Absolutely do all that stuff. But get back to living the way Christ wants you to live every moment of every day. And that isn't to be possessed of those things that ultimately you can't change. This world is on a collision course with a destiny that has already been marked out by God. It's not going to get saved. The U.S. isn't going to miraculously turn around and all of a sudden become, you know, some utopia. It isn't going to happen. Not because I say so. The Bible says so. It's heading towards an end that is already predetermined by God. So we're supposed to have wisdom in this world. We shouldn't be confused. We definitely shouldn't be seeking after things that are patently evil. We have to keep our eyes on the source of this heavenly wisdom. Why is that? Notice what this goes on to say. But this wisdom first is from above is pure. Its first characteristic is that it is undefiled. That's another good word. The Greek word here is hagos. 
from which is hagios, which is saints. It means so pure that it could be identified with God himself. We could actually use the word chaste there. That God's wisdom is absolutely pure because it has the character of God himself. Then when people see it, we go, that must be God. Because it looks like him, sounds like him, acts like him. This type of wisdom, you you can't mistake it. It is so clearly from heaven. Why? Because it's not like the world's wisdom. It isn't those things that we would look at and go, I think, well, that came from man. It's pure. Wisdom, just as Solomon said, is pretty easy to discern. But you know what's crazy? Solomon himself didn't exercise wisdom in his life. The end of his life was not good. He actually didn't do what he himself wrote down and is accredited to him as that beginning of the book of Proverbs. Matter of fact, he got overcome by the very things that he told everyone else not to do. And he died, in essence, a a lecherous fool. This wisdom is also benevolent. And so that's kind of, you could look at it this way, that's, that's like the motivation of, of the wisdom of God. It's benevolent in that it wants to bring peace. It's gentle. It's easy to be entreated. In other words, it's not hard to talk to. The wisdom of God is, is, is soft in the right way and truthful always. In other words, the things that God would say to you will always be truth, but they'll be in such a way that it's easy to take them. It's like, oh, that's what God's wisdom looks like. The idea of of God being gentle is that he forbears with us, that he's moderate in his responses, that he's very approachable. We would use that term probably the most often. God is actually approachable. Have you ever thought that God is approachable? That his wisdom, in his wisdom, he wants us to be approachable because he's approachable? Hence the reason it doesn't do any good to do some of the nutty, crazy things that people do because they say they're being holy. Yeah, but you're not approachable. Nobody wants to be anywhere near you. When you take out your protest signs and you you go to crusades and say, well, no one really comes to faith in Christ because you don't do the altar call the right way, you're leading no one to Christ, I can tell you that. You're not approachable. Nobody wants to be anywhere near you. This also means to be easily persuaded. In other words, if there's something going on, did you know that God actually is inclined to be merciful? He's easily persuaded to be gentle and kind and loving. It doesn't mean that he's also not truthful. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have standards. Those things are not true. God does have standards, and they're very high. But he's also very loving in how he makes those standards available to us. So that we look at it and go, God, I need your help. Can you help me? And he's going, sure I can. 
Let me walk with you through that. God is easily entreated is another way to look at this. In other words, what God says he wants from us, he helps us obtain. He helps us obtain it. You ever thought about that one? What we need most is forgiveness of our sin. Amen? That has to come from the perfect righteousness of Christ being in us so that there's no stain on our life. When we get to heaven, you're not going to have a little bit of stain. It's kind of like, well, you're, you know, you're kind of sorted. You're mostly okay. No, you're going to be perfectly like Christ when you get there. But God gives us the power. He gives us the help to be that way. And he's gentle about it. Now, out of all the things that I can honestly look back on my life and go, well, that was God correcting me. Not once can I really recall that God was just like the first thing out of his mouth, in essence, was, Jeff, you're a dead man. It was always like, Jeffrey, Scott Gill, what are you doing? He uses my full name when, Jeffrey, Scott Gill, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? How come you said that? Why are you going there? And yes, in that message was repent. And yes, in that message was change what you're doing because I'm not okay with this. And yes, if you keep going the way you're going, things are not going to be good for you. But it was never he got out the baseball bat and hit me between the eyes and said, man, you're dead. God gently spoke to my life. That, that bountiful nature, he is full of mercy. Notice what it says. He's completely filled with being merciful. He doesn't kind of have a little limited supply of mercy and a whole lot of law giving. He's full of mercy. He's rich in kindness. He overflows with gentleness. He also is fully truth. But if you look at what he's full of insofar as it relates to us, he's full of these beautiful things, peace and joy and gentleness and meekness. And he himself controls himself. It produces good fruit. It's easy to see. The world's wisdom does not produce good fruit. The philosophy of man, take a guy like Nietzsche. His hero, if you will, the superman of his way of thinking is Cesar Borgia. Evil, brutal, heinous. That's what man thinks, you know, philosophically. I think I need to be like that. Where's the mercy in Darwinism? Continued survival of the fittest, the passing along of the genetic traits of the things that do the best and other things die. I mean, where's the mercy of God in that thinking? Where's the mercy of Karl Marx? Friedrich Engels. They, in essence, abolished any thought of God. It's like, we got it. Get rid of God. God's the problem. And so when people run around, yeah, oh, we should be socialists. We should be communists. We should be Marxists. Really? Have you read what those guys wrote? What mercy did Lenin and his heirs have in imposing communism on Russia? 
the rest of the world. What mercy was there in Hitler's Mein Kampf? But he claimed to have great wisdom. Hitler's actually responsible for eugenics. He's responsible for racism. So when I hear people, well, you know, take that and do something with it because it doesn't belong in the mind of a child of God. When someone says that they're a white Christian nationalist, I look at them like, you're, you have a hole in your head spiritually. The love of God has leaked out of you. Matter of fact, I'm not sure it was ever in you if that's what you think. We're supposed to have mercy. Eleos, eleos. That's a cry of a child going, mercy, mercy, mercy. Story from Napoleon's life. Interesting character, Napoleon. If you ever want to read about someone who's just very interesting. Napoleon was interesting. Not everything he did was bad. But he had condemned a man to death and his mother appealed to him and asked for a pardon and Napoleon said, well, this was the man's second offense. And justice has to be done. He was basically the first time, let him go. Second time, look, it's just, we got to put him to death. That's what it's called, what's called for. And the mother persisted. She said, I'm not asking for justice. I'm asking for mercy. I'm not asking for what he deserves. I'm asking for what he doesn't deserve. I'm actually asking for mercy. And Napoleon had no argument for it. And he let the man go a second time. And essentially, that's how God views us. When we cry out for mercy, God gives us mercy. Resulting in grace, unmerited favor. That's, that's God's wisdom. It seems like you're giving in. It seems like you're giving up. It seems like you're letting someone who's guilty go free. But isn't that what we are as the body of Christ? Aren't we the guilty gone free? That's who we are. In God's wisdom, that actually works. The guilty go free, and the guiltless one died in our place. That's God's wisdom. Man didn't come up with that. The Greek pantheon, the Roman pantheon, you're not going to find any gods who gave up their own life. They were capricious and selfish and constantly doing whatever they wanted to please themselves. So when man makes up a God, it's just like us. That's how you can tell the difference between man's wisdom and God's wisdom. God's wisdom does things that we would never think of. The guilty go free. We who should die for our own sins get saved by someone who dies for them in our place. These characteristics are totally balanced. They're not given with discrimination. They're just given to everyone who asks. God's wisdom 
gives mercy to all who ask, gives peace to all who ask, is gentle to all who ask. It is just simply available. The term there is really, it says, without hypocrisy. It, it really means that there's no acting in it, there's no false motivation in it, there's no ulterior motive behind it. What you see is what you get with God. God loves you. God loves us. And he wants us to have his peace. He desires for us to experience his mercy. He wants us to walk in that joy of being his kids. And ultimately, that produces power in our lives. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. In other words, when you are a bearer of the peace of God, as the Lord is the bearer of the peace of God, then when you do that, righteousness is sown into your life. There's literally a deeper sense of righteousness to the peacemaker. You remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall have peace. Same exact thing. If you sow peace, you have peace. If you sow discord, if you do the opposite, if you're envious and jealous, if your life is filled with bitterness and strife and hatred, if you are envious, if you're not the person who wants all people to be at peace, then you start bearing some of the fruits of it, and it's fruits of unrighteousness. The person that's bitter bears unrighteousness of bitterness in their life. The person who's hateful bears the unrighteousness of hatefulness in their life. There's a cost. Oh, you can make your own decision. You know, we have so much of that conversation going on in the public square today. It's like everybody's demanding their rights. You know what my rights are? To die and perish and spend eternity without Christ. That's what my rights are, actually, because that's what I've earned. But praise God, because of his mercy, that's not what I'm going to get. Amen? I should want that for other people. That should be every child of God going, look, I, you know, I may disagree with you, but I still want you to have the God that wants you to be in, at peace with him. I still want you to experience his love and his care and his concern. I, I've listened to way too many Christians almost set up a Hierarchy is like, well, those people are outside and these people are in. You better pray that those people that are outside can get inside because if they can't get inside, maybe you never were. Maybe you never were. That's the God that I know. He seeks after those who are lost. He goes hunting for the one. He leaves the 90 and 9. He, he checks every inch of the house for the one coin. He doesn't want to lose a single sheep. So we should stop making the exclusionary notes that those people are outside of God's grace. The only person that's outside of God's grace literally is the person who no longer has breath of life. That's what every believer should act on. It's like nobody's completely lost until they're unable to be found. All this talk, well, you know, that person did this or did that. Yeah, that may be true. 
And it may be wrong. It could be completely sinful. But you don't know what the grace of God is doing in somebody else's life. So don't you judge them. You preach Christ to them. And to that end, Jesus expressed all these things. He was pure. He was peaceable. He was gentle. He was easily approached. He was absolutely full of mercy. Think about what Jesus did in Pilate's courtyard. You want to see the mercy of the Lord. Jesus was the most powerful entity to ever walk on this planet. In him all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. Paul would write to the church at Colossae. He was fully God. And in his mercy, he allowed pitiful Pilate to condemn him to death. He allowed a Roman soldier to drive nails through his hands and his feet. He allowed himself to be beaten and bruised. He's the epitome of mercy. Not one of his rights. He was God in human flesh. And he not only didn't demand his rights, he laid down his rights for us. That's God's wisdom. The wisdom of God says, if I yield, I can't go wrong. Well, what's the worst thing that can happen? The world kills me? Oh, darn, I go to heaven. You know, think about it for a second. I got into this conversation yesterday with the guy. Well, you know, if this happens, you know, he was going off on something that our president did. And I'm just like, okay, let's say that you're right. What's the worst thing that happens to the church? And he, you know, he's like, he wanted to hang up on me, but he couldn't. I said, the worst thing that can happen to the church is we all get killed. China invades, Russia invades, Mexico invades, the dolphins invade, the whales come unglued, the whole world turns against us. We lost all of our rights, we all get killed. Where are you going to be? Well, I'm going to be in heaven. I said, yeah, that's a real bummer. It's like, be merciful. Be kind. There's people in China that need Jesus. There's people in Russia that need Jesus. There's people in Iran that need Jesus. There's people in Afghanistan that need Jesus. We need to stop having this, this mindset. It's like, well, we need what we got here, but nobody else on earth needs it. No, I need mercy. And without the mercy of God, none of us would have what we have. We should want that for other people. The church of Christ, the body of Christ, should be the most merciful, peaceful people on the planet. That's God's wisdom. Amen? Would you stand with me and we'll close in prayer? After service, we're a little short pastors. We have guys all over. The, we had people in Colombia and people out on a couple of other 
missions things. So we have our prayer team in our prayer room. So if you need prayer tonight, I'm going to ask you to go to the prayer room. Well, let's pray together and ask God to fill us with this kind of wisdom. Lord, we come as your church and we just invite you. Lord, change us. Mold us and shape us and make us into the image of our Savior. Help us to be peaceable and kind and pure of heart. Willing to yield. Help us to be approachable. Lord, help us to live lives without hypocrisy and Lord, what you did on the cross drew all men unto yourself. Lord, you gave up every single right that you had, even your human rights. Your right to life, Lord, you surrendered that. You you died so that we could have life. Lord, help us to think that way. Help us to go all the way to that place if necessary. Lord, to live our lives with such abandon that when people see it, they attribute it to some other source than this world's wisdom so that we'd have the opportunity to tell them it came from heaven. Lord, help us to have heavenly wisdom and live lives that are pleasing to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.